Thank you. Thanks very much. Yes, I certainly um, feel qualified to talk about mistakes, having made plenty during my career. So, um, but you might wonder why clinical governance, why talk about clinical governance at an evidence-based veterinary medicine conference, but I think quite a few of the speakers today have touched on it, that it's really important. That, um, so what I'm going to do is try and just explain why um, evidence-based medicine is such an important part of clinical governance and how it relates to clinical effectiveness and clinical audit and how we can use the things that don't go that well in our practices and sometimes the things that do go brilliantly well um, to improve practice. And then I'm going to shut up and I've got a couple of little workshop things for you to do. Because so, this is supposed to be a workshop, so you're supposed to do some work, it shouldn't just be me. So um, I think we, we know that clinical governance is in the code it's in the RCVS code, it's something we should all do. Really, it's something that I think we always all have done. It's just looking at how we work, looking at how we practice, and seeing, excuse me, and reflecting on what we do and seeing if we could do it better and do it better for our uh, patients and do it better for our teams. So I think, you know, it's something we've always done, but now it needs to be done with a bit more structure. And clinical um, governance consists of clinical effectiveness and clinical audit. Now, clinical and oh, oops, sorry, and clinical effectiveness, as it says on the slide, is the application of the best available knowledge derived from research, from experience, um, to achieve optimum processes and optimum outcomes of care. But I prefer being a bit of a simple person. That's all a bit too long and wordy for me. I prefer do the right thing and then do the thing right. And where evidence-based veterinary medicine is important is telling us what the right thing is. That's, that's the role of evidence-based veterinary medicine in clinical governance, for us to look at it and see what the right thing is. And then clinical effectiveness is making sure that we actually do the right thing. So we've talked a little bit earlier about clinical audit. And basically, clinical audit is about monitoring our clinical effectiveness by collecting information on the quality of care. So there are outcome audits, process audits, and significant event audits. And I'm going to talk today mostly about significant event audits. But I think people get confused when they hear um, clinical audit because they all only think about outcome audits. They only think about collecting data. They only think about, they get confused with practice-based research. And we talked about practice-based research earlier, which is about finding out what the best treatment is, whereas um, clinical outcome audit is about trying to see if we are, we are doing it properly. Um, but there are also process audits and significant event audits. So outcome audits look at the result, so they're the classic thing of um, anaesthetic death or post-operative wound infections, um, so, and the data can be collected retrospectively, looking back at your records, or it be, can be collected prospectively um, by planning an audit in advance. So things like the results of any kind of surgery, um, as I say, post-op infections. Process audits look at whether we are complying with a protocol or guideline. And if not, why not? So it might be, uh, are we complying with a blood sampling protocol of how often we're going to monitor hypothyroid cats? Uh, are we complying with a uh, is the team complying with dispensing protocols of how medicines are dispensed or with cleaning protocols and they can be audited quite easily and process audits are just as valuable as outcome audits. 
the new practice, the, the RCPS practice standard scheme, I couldn't help bringing this in, being a, a PSS lead assessor, now has the optional awards. The optional awards are made up of modules, and practically every module is, is set out in the same way for all the subjects, anesthesia, dentistry, surgery. It starts with CPD requirements, goes on to general training requirements, and finishes up with a requirement for audit, which can be outcome audit, process audit, or significant event audit. So we're, this is all going out into practices, and practices are starting to um, do these awards, and we had a, a, a ceremony at BVNA where the practices have already achieved the awards, uh, received their awards, and they've found that they're very motivating for the teams, but it's making a lot more practices aware of clinical audit. And there are a lot of practices out there that don't really understand what clinical governance and clinical audit is. That's why I think that significant event audit is a great way for practices that haven't engaged with clinical audit at all, or even with evidence-based veterinary medicine, to get involved. I love this quote from Liam Donaldson when he was um, uh, not Secretary for Health, I'm not sure what the technical term was. Um, to, to err is human, we all do it, we all make mistakes. We mustn't cover them up, but to, and to fail to learn is inexcusable. And I think that's what we need to do. We need a more open culture in veterinary practice. In the past, we have maybe have, to some extent, certainly in my 30 years of practice, there have been times when practices, when there's a complaint from anybody, everybody gets defensive, the boss shouts, everybody else wonders who they can put the blame onto. Uh, it all gets a little bit strained, it gets defensive, people bottle it up inside, don't really talk about it. I think that's really bad for our mental health if we don't talk about it. We all know we make mistakes, I know I make mistakes. I feel better if I can discuss those mistakes with other people and learn something from the mistakes and get something positive out of it. because. If you just keep it all bottled up inside, I think, it, as I say, I think it does affect the mental health of the profession. We need open um, cultures in our practices where we can talk about things that don't go that well, and there are bound to be things that don't go that well, and learn from them. So what sort of errors? Well, obviously human errors, top of the list. Um, mistakes that we make, knowledge that we didn't have, we're tired, we're overworked, pressure. But there's also system failures, not having protocols and guidelines. People have talked quite a lot today about protocols and guidelines, and not having those protocols and guidelines in place means that system, you don't have the systems in place. People don't have the security of having a system of how they should be working. And then you get the time pressures of uh, busy practice, and you get not having enough team members being a bit understaffed, Lack of communication, particularly in practices, practices getting bigger and bigger. It used to be we worked in quite small practices where there, there might be two or three vets, a couple of nurses, everybody knew each other, everybody knew the way other people worked and therefore you could anticipate things and problems. Now, people work in bigger teams, you may not know your other colleagues that well, you certainly don't work with them all the time on a day-to-day -day basis, so it's more important to have systems in place. And those changing teams, it's more important to have communication, good systems of communication in, in place. And the other thing that can affect errors, of course, is the, the patient, either interfering with their stitches or their dressings or whatever, and the client not complying with the instructions you've given them. So all those things together are the things that make up errors. 
If you're interested in errors in veterinary practice, I would strongly recommend you read this article from Catherine Oxterby and others um, from the Vet Record last year, which talks about the different errors, system failures, human errors. So it's a really interesting subject and one that's starting to be discussed now and brought into the open, which I think is really important. So I think Louise just put up this quote earlier, so we have it again, from Michael Pringle, Professor of General Practice at Nottingham, which says, a significant event is anything that anybody thinks is significant, basically, to the running of the practice and the care of the patient. It is a form of audit. It's not a quantitative form of audit. You don't need to collect any figures, but it is a qualitative form of audit, and therefore it still needs some structure. It's not just a matter of, oh, well, we might just discuss it, or... You know, one, a couple of people just discussed it over coffee and then forgot about it. There's got to be a structured format to significant event audit. And it is an opportunity to learn from a single event. And I think, as I said before, that practices that have not engaged with clinical governance or audit or, or um, evidence-based medicine, this is a good place to start because you're starting with a negative, which everybody feels a little bit down about. If you can turn that round into a positive, you can motivate the team and all sorts of things can come from um, what happens, all sorts of, you can follow it down all sorts of avenues. So what sort of things are significant events? Well, obviously the serious ones like anaesthetic deaths, um, a very serious dispensing error where completely the wrong drug or the wrong or massively overdose. Um, things like lab reports not being, um, lab results not being reported to owners. They arrive back in, nobody, there's no system, nobody bothers to report them, so it's a long time before the treatment starts, and, and often, often these things compound each other, don't they, and turn into complaints. There's the non-clinical things, the things like um, not, not remembering or, or nobody having a system to remove the, the names uh, of pets that, are, that you have put to sleep in the practice and then somebody sends the owner a boost reminder which is just guaranteed to absolutely upset them and wind them up. The wrong cremation, a classic, isn't it? That's happened, you know, it's usually not been a particularly good euthanasia to start with. Something's gone a little bit wrong. The owner had to wait for ages. The... Um, the, the vet was, very, was a new graduate, maybe a little bit nervous, and then things go from bad to worse, so that took a while. And then the owner felt rushed because the, it was so busy, they had to go straight out. They mentioned they would like private cremation, they come back a week later, and they're told, oh no, sorry, it's gone for normal cremation. So, you know, those, those are definitely significant events and something you should investigate because then you can put systems in place to make that less likely to happen again. And near misses too. Don't wait for something bad to happen. If you have a near miss where you think, gosh, that one more, you know, that could have progressed, well, discuss that because then you may prevent it from progressing the next time. And as I said earlier, there can be positive significant events too. So it can be um, something that goes really well that you thought wasn't going to. So don't make it all negative. You can discuss positive significant events too. So I think it's a great way to get everybody involved, and I do mean everybody. Um, one of the practices where, where I locum, um, I persuaded them to have some of these meetings, and they're quite keen now, and um, they had a meeting where... They'd almost, it was a near-miss meeting, they'd almost had an animal escape. Um, and they had everybody there. And the people who, um, this was when it was being transferred from the branch surgery, and the people who inputted the most to the meeting and came up with the best suggestions were the receptionist, the reception team, because they'd, they understood all the problems of, you know, arranging these things in advance and so on. So it, input, have input from the whole team. And 
then the whole team can learn from what happens and try and find something positive from it. I think it really does improve practice morale. Oops. It really does improve practice morale if actually you take something negative and turn it into a positive. So you find out what your significant event is, you identify your significant event, and then I would keep a log. I was talking to somebody earlier, and they'd been to hear me talk about this before, and they said they now have a book where they, where they write all down these things that happen, even quite small things, because it's a little bit like the, um, the cycling team, isn't it? Small things that you put right can all accumulate to make big improvements. So keep a log of all, of all your significant events, not just the clinical ones. If it's something really serious, then have your meeting straight away. If it's something with low to moderate harm, then you can do it at a routine practice meeting. And like I say, include near misses. The next step is to gather the information. This is really important. So you want the history, you want the clinical records, you want the accounts of everybody who was involved, you want any lab reports or imaging or any phone logs or anything else that you've got. So collect that information together. But the most important thing about this meeting, the most important thing, is that it's not going to be a blame meeting. It's not about blaming anybody. It is about trying to find out what happened. It's not about blaming individuals. It's about improving systems. I think that's the thing to get through to people. This is about systems, not about people. So the meeting should be open, honest, fair, not to apportion blame. It's looking at systems. It's good to have somebody who... Um, to be in charge of the meeting um, so that it doesn't go off down any of those alleyways of blaming somebody and, and you know, individuals passing the blame around. We don't want that. And it's important to keep minutes. If you do this for the first time in a practice and there is an incident where um, the, the, the clinical director or the senior partner or the head nurse or somebody who wants to have this, to do this, was, thinks that they're the person who's actually been involved in the incident, that's a really good one to start with because then it's non-threatening to the rest of the staff and they can see you're doing it as a no-blame environment and it becomes more open. Or even I've known practices that have used one of the theoretical um, scenarios we're going to talk about in a minute and had their first meeting using just a theoretical scenario to just get people into the idea of it so it doesn't become a scary thing. So, as Louise said earlier, what happened, why it happened, and not just the main reason, but any underlying reason. So, it could be, why did it happen? The nurse forgot, can be a, a common reason, or the, or the vet forgot. Well, why did they forget? Because they were trying to do five or six other things, because the, the staffing levels are not adequate, um, because of this and that going on. So, it's important to look for those underlying reasons, not just the main reasons. Then think about what you've learned from it and what you need to change as a result. That's the important thing. The whole point of this, if change is needed, is to make changes. So the result might be that change isn't needed, that actually we couldn't have done anything different, and that's fine. Or the result might be that there are systems that need to change, that we found out we didn't have protocols in place, we need to institute them. Or there's a need for CPD or learning generally. Um, or, it might, quite often, this might lead on to deciding to do a, a clinical audit. So it, this is what I'm saying. It will lead practices down the, down the path of clinical audits and evidence-based medicine. So if you need to take changes as a result, look at the evidence base. Draw up protocols if you haven't got them, or make changes to protocols if you have got them, or checklists. Look if people need more training, if you need general team training, or if... Individuals need CPD. 
improve the communication and the practice because it's nearly always communication, isn't it? At the base of nearly all these things, it's, it's communication. And then think about whether you can use this as a subject for an audit. If you make any changes, agree, so say we're going to make these changes and then we're going to review this in two months or three months or whatever you decide because there's no point making the changes and not monitoring it. So you can either monitor it by audit or monitor it by having a meeting and discussing it, but you need to follow it up and review it at future meetings. And the thing about making changes is really important. I don't know, um, if from the point of view of owners, when they make complaints to you, um, I did for a little while, uh, I do practice standards now, I did do some complaints investigation with the college, and when you talk to owners who um, have had a less than happy outcome, and you say, what would you like to happen? It is actually, believe it or not, very rare for them to say, I want the vet struck off. They don't normally say that. What they normally say is, I don't want this to happen to somebody else's dog or cat. So by changing processes and protocols, and tell it, we can tell them when we have to deal with a complaint, we can say, well, because of what happened, we have now put this in place. And, and owners are a lot happier about that. So I think it would be really good to write up significant audit, event audit reports. I think they could be anonymized. I think that, I mean, don't we all love reading the VDS newsletter, the stories about all the things that have happened to people? But I think, aside from it being entertaining, more importantly, I think it's really important to share these things between ourselves because they happen to everybody. And if we could share this information in an anonymized form, then I think that would be something that people could look at and they could use it for their significant event audit meetings. And I think not, this would be a great thing for knowledge to have on their website. We could have a little section where people could put things on and discuss things and see what people have done to resolve the issues that they've had. And then maybe we could learn from other people's mistakes, not just learn from our own. So here's a practical example. Good old Mr. Smith, he's 82, but he's still very fit and healthy. He's got a bit of arthritis and he's got a cat called Fred. He brings Fred in because Fred's been fighting yet again and he's got a bite abscess. The vet that he saw prescribed Fred some enrofloxacin tablets. Um, there's got a new student veterinary nurse at the practice and she put up the tablets according to the instructions on the label that came through. Mr. Smith went to reception and then he said to Denise, who's been there for donkey's years, he went, They've given me these, they want me to have tablets, but I don't really think I can give Fred tablets. Fred's a bit feisty, you know, I don't think I can get those down him. So Denise had a look and happened to notice, luckily, that these were 50 mig tablets for this small, skinny little cat, not the 15 mig tablets that the vet suggested. Um, so she went through to the vet and said, oh, you sh did, you want, did you want to give these dog tablets to a cat? He went, oh, no, sorry. Um, and got Mr. Smith back in and gave Fred an antibiotic injection. So this is a near miss, isn't it? This, nothing happened here. We have had, there have been incidents where not just a 50 mig tablet, but a 150 mig tablet has been uh, given to a cat um, and with um, very unfortunate consequences for the cat's vision in the long term. But um, these things happen, but in this case it was picked up by the receptionist. So if the practice had a meeting about this, well, if the practice had a meeting about this, what kind of things would they discuss? Do you think? First of all, checking yeah, so having some sort of system for checking prescriptions, absolutely. 
Well, what happened was the vet did mean to prescribe the 15 milligram tablets, but you know the drop down, those drop down boxes, it's so easy, isn't it, to just click on the wrong line? So clicked on the wrong line, and that's why it was 50 mig. It was a very busy day, the vet was rushed, and the waiting room was really busy. Why did it happen? Well, it was busy, like I said. But the other thing is that the veterinary nurse, who was a new student veterinary nurse, as we said, had only just started, and it was, she'd only been there a few days, she did, happen, she did think, are these the right tablets? But earlier in the day, earlier in that surgery, she'd gone and asked the vet about something, and he'd been extremely grumpy and nearly bitten the head off. So she didn't feel that she could ask him. Also, I say she'd only been there a short time, she hadn't had any in-house training on dispensing and, the, and protocols for the dispensary in the practice. So that was why it happened. So we've looked at what happened, why it happened. So what's been learned? Well, do we think that was a particularly appropriate antibiotic to have used? Necessarily as a first line for a cat with a cat bite abscess? So maybe this might bring the team on to thinking about responsible antibiotic use. Um, definitely the vet should have inquired from the client whether they were able to give their cat tablets because it's not very sensible to give them if they didn't. They hadn't got any protocol for dispensing. They weren't doing any double checking. Um, and really the practice needed a bit more open culture for the nurse, for the nurse to have been able to question the vet. So what have they changed? They had a meeting on uh, responsible antibiotic prescribing. Um, they looked at the evidence base. They, then they used the, um, have you all seen the BSAVA Protect poster, and, uh, which is, gives a really good framework for looking at which antibiotics you use as first line, second line in different conditions. So um, they used the BSAVA Protect to set up some practice guidelines after they'd, and they had a meeting which then counts as clinical governance, that's good for their next practice standards assessment as well, um, where, the, where they discussed it all. They did some communication training because they thought the communication in the practice generally wasn't very good. They, somebody wrote as protocol on dispensing medicines, which is really important. And if you, if you haven't got SOPs on dispensing, then I can strongly recommend the BSAVA Guide to the Use of Veterinary Medicines, which has some great examples written by the pharmacist from Edinburgh Vet School. There's lots of SOPs there. You have to personalize them to your own practice. But then they did team training, more importantly, and introduced a double-checking system. So those things all came out of one little incident, which didn't even cause a real problem or a complaint, but just potentially could have. The other thing is, um, that, that I'm talking about significant event audit, but just as uh, in, in passing, really, those of you who do M&Ms in your practices, morbidity and mortality meetings, have you seen this framework for M&Ms, the SBAR framework? Has anybody seen that before? They use it in the NHS quite a lot. So rather than just having M&Ms where somebody, somebody's chosen to stand up and discuss their case and discusses it in, a, in, you know, in, in the order they want to and says what they, what, what they want, you actually do have a structure to it. So the S is the situation, so that's the problem and any relevant details. The B is the background, so that's the history and the comp whatever complication it was that happened. The A is the assessment and analysis, 
And again, it's looking at the error itself, but also looking at the root cause. So they're looking at the human factors, as we said before. Was it that somebody didn't know that, or was it that somebody forgot? Or they look at uh, system factors, not having protocols and guidelines, and they look at patient factors. Then it's SBAR, but there's an E in there, so don't ask me why that isn't mentioned in the SBAR, but E for evidence. So then um, they go away and look for any relevant literature, and the R is the recommendation. How could it have been managed differently? And what learning points uh, have they got from it? So that's, to me, that's exactly the same as a significant event audit meeting, but it's just structured as an M&M. But I think it's useful to have a structure um, so that everybody presents things in the same way and has to address all those issues. So, enough from me. You're going to do two groups for a few minutes. So we'll start with um, the, t the, t the two teams over here that had um, case number one then, shall we? Okay, shall we, shall we go through it then? So the, the team... Groups over here that had number one, which was um, Joe belonging to Peter, who was a Siamese cat um, with diabetes mellitus. Uh, so for the other group, if you want to quickly read that, because that's the scenario the other group had, so you know what they're talking about. So Joe was uh, diagnosed after one blood sample, put on insulin twice a day, seemed to be okay for about three months. They practice told Peter how to do some EFAM blood sampling and how to use the dose to glucose levels to alter the dose but then when he rang up to get advice he had different advice from three different vets in the practice on how much to increase the insulin dose by and how often he should be doing the testing they didn't take any more blood samples and the cat finished up at an emergency clinic so that was the main information that you had beforehand and then you got a little bit more information from the meeting because the practice manager phoned Peter and asked him what had gone on after they were finding out that luckily Joe had survived at the emergency clinic but after a, rather a crisis um, but Peter had said that he thought it was great that Joe was losing weight because everybody had told him Joe was too fat um, he had told people on the phone a locum they had and the nurses that Joe was drinking loads of water but he didn't think that was a problem um, Joe was a bit of a beggar and would not have his EFA and blood sampling done very often. And the practice manager happened to mention to Peter about the insulin uh, being cold. And he went, well, why? Was I supposed to keep it in the fridge? He didn't know that he was supposed to keep it in the fridge. He'd just been keeping it out in the, on top of the telly in the living room. So what kind of conclusions did you come to over here with your... I mean, they seem far-fetched, these scenarios, but... <laughs> but... <laughs> Ones that happen in practice can be just as... Uh, and usually when one thing goes wrong, it just compounds, doesn't it? And more and more things go wrong. So what, did you, what conclusions did you come to? What did you think the... Um, so that was... Somebody want to run through it for me? Why, why do you think it happened? And, uh, well, we thought that uh, the client should have had clear written instructions for a start as to what he was expected of him and should have been asked, was he able to actually comply you know did he feel comfortable with doing it and there should have been a, a more organized follow-up recall system to get the cat back and check and talk about how he was getting on 
there didn't seem to be standard advice given, so you know, the, the team didn't seem to have agreed what the advice was. Um, people hadn't recorded important information, and there were no appointment for follow-up blood samples, which there should have been. Okay. Would anybody like to add anything from the other group? It's basically uh, kind of the same. So we had um, that there apparently is a lack of protocols for diagnosis and for treatment of diabetes um, and that it's not really clear who is responsible for this case as there were many different vets giving different advice and um, there is apparently um, a miscommunication between owner and vet, nurse and vet and owner and yeah. Everybody. Miscommunication everybody, between yeah. everybody. So if you remember, we said that there are four things we want to look at at the end of, for, the, for what should change. So do you think there's any CPD or training needed here? Yeah, I think the whole team could have some communication training and um, any CPD? Yeah, nobody's touched on the insulin yet, have they? And, what um, they should have had some better advice about. So, so training, so protocols, do you think they need protocols? I would say definitely, um, because they don't seem to have any, or if they have, they may have them, but no, nobody knows them, nobody knows they're there, and certainly nobody's, nobody's using them. Um, looking at the evidence base, would you do that? Yeah. So I think you have a meeting, don't you, where a delegate maybe to a couple of people to look up all the latest review articles on diabetes mellitus treatment in cats, then have a meeting, a vet's meeting, to get everybody on board, because we don't want to just impose these protocols, do we? We want everybody to feel that they've been involved, and everybody can put their, you know, three vets, five opinions, or whatever, in about what they do, and then come to a consensus. And um, what about audit, then? That's the other thing we... So we've got CPD, evidence-based protocols. Are we, will this lead to audit in the practice, do you think? Sorry? Yeah, do you want to... Yeah, I was going to say... Uh, yeah, check what they've told all their other patients, yeah. What, what, what about... They've, once they've got a protocol, so going forward, they've now got a protocol, they've all agreed on it. They need would, to would, check they're using it. Yeah, so would you do a process audit then? of how they're using it, of looking, mm -hmm. because there will be, we all know it's not going to be 100% because there's going to be reasons that whatever you decide is going to be your protocol, there's going to be reasons to deviate from it because of cost, because of non-compliance by owners or whatever, but you could see how, to what extent people are following the protocol, <laughs> do a process audit, look at the results of that and then think, okay, well, hardly anybody's following it, so therefore we need to review it, or yes, we're doing pretty well, most people are following it, but of course there's all these ones that we couldn't follow it for whatever reason. You might also do a dispensing audit. You might, like Caroline said about the dispensing, we might do a dispensing audit because obviously that insulin was not given out with the, any kind of instructions to the owner, um, so they could lead to decide to look at your dispensing, see, uh, do a process audit or, or of that, or a great dispensing audit is just to... Um, getting slightly off the subject, but a great dispensing audit, if, um, medicines audit, is to, on a certain day, just go and get all those things that are put out to be collected by clients, 
and just get and have a look at them all. First of all, is it the right thing in the bag? Is it the right drug, the right size, the right size of, you know, if it's even if it's frontline, is it the cat one when it should be or the dog one? Then are they labeled at all? Are they labeled correctly? Have they been authorized by a vet? Are they double checked if that's what your system says? Um, and then you could say, okay, 100% were the right thing, but only 80% were authorized by the vet and only 70% were labeled, were double checked. And you can see where you need to tighten up your system. So that's a really easy. People get scared of audit, but that's a really easy, simple thing that anybody could do. Sorry, I was going to say for something like insulin or uh, treating diabetes, it's not just giving tablets to an animal I do think that needs special instructions absolutely well. and training for proper yeah. training for the owner and also assessing whether the owner can do it yeah. so in in the um, in the PSS there's, there's in the outpatient section the, there's a requirement for diagnostic and therapeutic protocols drawn up following following team discussion considering the evidence base not just imposed um, shouldn't interfere with clinical freedom and, and are used Okay, Patty. So this group over here had Patty, whose picture you saw. Um, a flat coat whose owners had just moved into the area. And when she went for a booster, um, the vet found a lump on her right flank and said, oh God, this is a flat coat. It might be something nasty. We better get this off quickly. Um, so she was booked in, admitted by a nurse. She was anesthetized. She had some sort of respiratory stroke cardiac crisis um, during the anesthetic. Um, the team started trying to resuscitate her, uh, but when they went to the crash kit, there wasn't any adrenaline in there. Uh, the nurse rushed into the dispensary and luckily found some in there. So they carried on with the op, and, but they actually removed a lump from her left. Well, good, they took that one off anyway, because the vet hadn't noticed that one, but unfortunately they didn't take the one on the right off. So when their owners came to collect her, they weren't very happy. They, they, were, they were transparent. They told the owners there'd been a problem under the anaesthetic. They didn't try and hide it. They told the owners, but the owners said, well, you should have known that because she had a problem when she was spayed. And this lump you've taken off is not the right one. Um, so obviously the owners weren't very happy. So you had this over here, didn't you? Uh, and you got a bit more information, you got a bit more extra information about the records, etc. So do you want to carry on? Yeah, well, I mean, we all looked at it and sort of catalogue of errors here, really. I mean, obviously the main things have gone wrong. The wrong mass was removed, um, and the other one wasn't sort of, sort of recognised or recorded. And the fact there was no uh, previous history, well, there was, but it wasn't available for those that were... Uh, working together and of course the problems with, with the adrenaline so we suggested that it happened because the processes for the scanned records obviously weren't in place um, so the fact that it was a mast cell tumor the general anesthetic problems the ACP well that's probably a red herring in this case but it just wasn't known so a breakdown of communication uh, sounds to me just uh, going off slightly on a tangent that the vet was the consulting vet was very quick to want to operate that day yet he wasn't or she wasn't the person involved with that and there was a sort of new clinical team involved so we've got the whole uh, uh, admission and consultation of the animal not being really communicated to, to uh, almost sort of passed on to another team straight away and obviously we've got problems with the crash box sort of processes um, so what's been learned well obviously importance of talking to each other and communication processes uh, a definite need for verbal uh, uh, and written uh, information for, 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 for the history of that, that um, uh, 
dog coming in for, for new clients? Uh, how important is to have a protocol for the replenishment of the crash box um, and the need for a full pre-anesthetic check um, uh, b beforehand? So the suggestion is for sort of changing is, or, or ideas for changing is, a proper protocol for, for new clients and making sure that the history is available and scanned and everyone is aware of it. I think a, a, a great detailed look at the admission to operation protocol. Uh, I'm just thinking in this particular case, uh, you know, the vet had clipped up the lump to be removed if a photograph had been taken or just the general communication with the clinical team. Obviously a protocol for checking the crash boxes uh, and we all um, we also thought that the um, uh, redesigning the general anaesthetic sheet so that all the previous history could be put on there. Uh, one, one chap suggested having the actual doses for the, from the crash box available so they could be uh, sort of looked at. Um, and then sort of reviewing that, uh, I suppose the other thing is just the staffing situation. Got a new vet, uh, sorry, a vet and a new nurse hadn't worked together, so that probably wasn't the greatest start, um, which has perhaps been a bit more of an induction process. And last but not least, to look back and review a sort of process audit, looking and doing spot checks on the crash box, and then perhaps checking the general anaesthetic sheets. That okay, sort of thing. great. Anybody yeah. else? Anything else to add from that group? Anything else to suggest or add? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very good. Um, so have we got any C CPD or training requirements there? Um, Something else. I, yeah. Well, well I, I, could, I think a general anaesthesia thing would be, probably been quite good. Yeah. Um, just on, on anaesthetics. And maybe, good, as they said, some communication training yeah. as well, because that's not yeah. really. Yeah. And what about um, looking at the evidence base? Does that lead you to look at anything? So, looking at looking at the evidence for anything well, there. Mm. And particular breeds. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And what about protocols or that type of thing? They seemed a bit. The whole thing seems to be a bit disorganised, doesn't it, from beginning to end. Did anybody in your group suggest a checklist? Yes. Great. <laughs> I think this is, this is a person, I think this would be a great place because it would address quite a lot of those problems because if you have a checklist, it starts off with checking that you've got all the equipment that you should have before you start and the equipment's all okay. Then checking, then have you all, have you, has everybody in here read checklist manifesto or seen the World Health Organization safe surgery checklist. Uh, but it's, it basically, it comes from human medicine, it came from originally for third world countries. Atul Gawande has written this brilliant book, The Checklist Manifesto, all about it. And basically, um, in human healthcare, they uh, decided to try and institute a sort of checklist system where it starts off with the members of the team introducing themselves to each other because they're new, they don't know each other necessarily. I know in our practices that seems a bit silly sometimes, but I think it's a good idea because it gets you working as a team. And then um, checking that you've got the right equipment, checking that you've got the right patient, checking that you've got the right 
limb or the right lump or whatever, right from the beginning, going back through the history and having a look if there's any, um, any so-called allergic reactions or anything from the history that might be important. And somebody reading these things out, not just doing it, which I think we all try and do anyway, but somebody reading it out and ticking it off on the list. Um, and I think that that could have, a checklist here could have, possibly, and I think this practice should think about having a checklist, an anesthesia and surgery checklist that they go through and they actually read out, because it's so easy, human errors, to miss one step out in a checklist, isn't it? And one step out in a procedure. And it might not seem that important, that one tiny step, but it, it will be. Um, yeah, and then there's the things like that the, the nurses probably, nursing team probably should have a protocol for checking the crash kit really every day, or that could be part of the checking the anaesthetic equipment at the beginning of the day. Um, so, anything else? Well, actually, I wasn't part of that group, but in my practice, we wouldn't actually remove a lump without doing the primary last group, especially if we had it. Yeah. Last and if, so if you'd so known... We wouldn't have rushed into doing that without knowing... If you'd had the history... And you know, or even if you, even if you suspected, you, you may have, that would be in your practice, whatever your practice protocol is for dealing with suspected massage. Yeah, for dealing with suspected massage. <laughs> I know. No. No, but then that, that's in the consultation, and then we've got a different team doing the op and might benefit from a checklist. I mean, any systems. Yes, and so, but I, but I think a checklist can only make things better. It certainly couldn't make things worse, could it? Um, and I agree with you, and I think probably, there are far-fetched scenarios, but probably sometimes people will find one thing and go, ah, oh, found that. So, and then they get forget to carry on and finish off the clinical examination. Yes. Absolutely, and if they'd stopped, if they'd done something like a checklist and they stopped to think about it and look back, they might have found, had somebody done that, or they might have at least looked back through the history, had it been there. So, uh, um, so the World Health Organization checklist I was just telling you about, the pilot study they did, in, uh, they did it in third world countries, made a fantastic difference, and then they finished up actually doing it in Boston, where Atul Gawande uh, was practicing, and the surgeons there were like, we don't need a checklist, we're surgeons. <laughs> but they, it made a difference there as well. And I think these figures are amazing. The, the deaths fell by 47%, complications fell by 36%, infections fell by 48%. 78% of the people involved said it had prevented an error, 
and 93% said that if they were having an op, they would want a checklist to be involved. Now, might be a bit naive, but I think if you could get a drug that would do that, or a piece of kit that you would do that, you'd buy it, wouldn't you? If you, if you got a, a drug that would do, you know. Um, exactly. Exactly. Whereas we spend a lot of money as, on practices on bits of nice shiny bits of kit. We spend quite a lot of money on CPD. But do we spend the time and effort on systems of work? Which actually can have just as, I think this shows that systems of work can have as big an effect as bits of kit and, and, and medicines and that we should spend more time on them and, and get the whole culture of the practice doing it. And for the checklists, I won't go on too long about checklists because I could go on about that for about an hour, but um, empower the nurses. Give the nurses the checklist and tell them they can, they've got the power to say, stop, you haven't done this step. When they did that with um, central, Louise talked about um, IV catheters, when they did that with central venous lines right back before even this in the States, um, and they empowered the nurses to stop if they did, people didn't put their gloves on or didn't gown up before they did it, um, it the infection rate went from 11% to zero because the nurses said to anybody, even the sort of senior consultants, they could go, stop, no, you haven't got your gloves on, you can't do that. So I think it's empowering people. And just because it's evidence-based, this is a paper, a systematic review on the use of safety checklists. None of them reported anything negative, and basically they strengthen compliance with guidelines, they improve or they reduce the risk from human factors, reduce the incidence of adverse events, and decrease mortality and morbidity. So that's it. Thank you very much. <laughs>